Welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett, and I'm your host. Chris Plazina is a licensed psychologist, retired professor, and book author. He has been in practice for nearly 25 years, focusing in particular on men and how dogs play a role in impacting their lives. We've actually had Chris as a guest on the show before, but this time he's here to talk about his new book, One Unwavering Friend, that looks into 20 historical men and their dogs from the 19th to 20th centuries. For over three years, this podcast, Dog Save the People, has been my passion project. I've loved connecting with so many interesting guests and having the honor to learn about the power of dogs. Not the amazing Jane Campion movie with Benedict Cumberbatch, which is, by the way, so worth seeing. Rather, the power that I'm speaking about is how the selfless act of taking care of dogs does transform us. Making this show takes a village, so I'm asking if you all might consider supporting the show by buying me a cup of coffee. If you could go to buymeacoffee.com slash dogpeople and tip $5 to help me keep making the show. Even better would be to do a monthly donation every month as long as you want to. A year would be awesome. And with that will be some exclusive membership opportunities and some special content that we will be creating just for you. Again, that's buymeacoffee.com slash dogpeople to donate the equivalent of what you might spend on a coffee. Chris, welcome back to Dog Save the People. It's so great to have you again with us today. Whereabouts are we speaking to you from? I live in the mountains outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. I was actually just in Santa Fe and really got such a wonderful dose of the Southwest flavor again. And every time that I go down there, I'm like, gosh, I've got to figure out how to spend more time down here because it is. It's a magical, magical, enchanted area. It has a very special feel. Always brings me to think about our relationship with animals and especially in my life, my connection with dogs. We're going to be speaking about your new book, but for those listeners who did not hear our first conversation, just wondering if you could just give me a little bit of your background and your personal history with dogs. Absolutely. I work as a psychologist full-time now. I was a professor for 20 years and... My area of focus was working with men and the special issues they face in relationships and the difficulty they have sometimes in connecting and how that gets worked out sometimes in psychotherapy and sometimes with the aid of animal companions in our lives. What's been interesting is that I've had a lot of people on the show, a lot of male guests, and so many of them have spoken to this idea that their dogs in particular, have really helped them establish and grow. And for example, we had a show about firefighters whose dogs were helping them to express their feelings. Potentially what can happen in those situations, we don't like to feel like someone is giving to us without being able to return the favor, because that creates a kind of power imbalance. So again, this is like one of those deals that the connection with animals can fly under the radar because it becomes a reciprocal relationship and it becomes a leveling field like, wow, the dog gives to me and I give to them. And there's something really important about that equal playing field in terms of care and connection. It makes it somewhat safer. And in no way does this bond belong exclusively to men, but Some of the things that impact how we're socialized and taught to be males, especially in North America, 
really play a role in how safe it feels to connect with people. My late husband, who grew up in a pretty rough home, pretty abusive home, was very cut off and very much afraid of his feelings. And he ended up getting a dog, a Bernese Mountain dog. And he was at first so afraid having this dog because he was afraid that he was going to repeat the patterns of behavior that he grew up experiencing. And this dog provided such a safe space for him that he was able to really work through a lot of these issues and finally kind of come out on the other end knowing that he was okay and that he could love and that he could allow himself to be vulnerable and that he could care for somebody else safely. I will never forget that story because it really kind of broke my heart when he told me, but I don't think that it's uncommon. No, and it really is a beautiful story. This idea of attachment is really important here. And one way to look at this is that we can kind of keep our need to connect compartmentalized until certain things happen. Sometimes that's when we feel vulnerable. Sometimes when it feels like we really need the presence of another. Sometimes it's, you know, you're tired and the end of the day, or maybe you've had your heart broken one too many times, either by family or friends or partners. There's a push-pull that goes on in terms of a want to connect, but a fear to connect. And one of the things that happens, I think, with our animal companions, it's really based in our biology. We are allowing ourselves to connect physiologically. The bonding hormone oxytocin kicks in within 20 or 30 seconds. So we may go into the encounter with a dog saying, you know, I don't want to be around a dog. I don't want to adopt another dog. But we're in the presence of the dog. And a part of us that's hardwired begins to kick in like, isn't it really great to connect? Isn't it warm and wonderful? We find ourselves opening our hearts in ways that we might not otherwise. Once we have that part of us that kicks in, other things can occur. And this is a long-term project for so many of us, Mals. It's not just, I'm going to move past my ambivalence about connecting. They begin to teach us that there are some bonds in life that really are trustworthy, that they really can be a bond that we receive from, but also give to. And for so many males, that is a corrective experience that really changes our lives. So the book is called One Unwavering Friend, which is such a beautiful title. Oh, thanks. The new book is really an extension of this work. And part of this is, you know, the research that I've done over the years. Some of it is the stories that I've experienced personally, but also professionally. And the book is a collection of 20 stories that talk about sometimes very well-known people over the last 200 years who were successful in lots of ways, but sometimes their relationships were less than successful. And it's really that space where animal companions came to be and impact them in significant ways. How did this book come about? I started writing this book probably four years ago. At the time with my dog, Sadie, who was really in the latter part of her life. We had been together 16 years and she would sit beside my writing desk as I worked on this book and she passed away Mm -hmm. and I set the book down for a bit. And in the midst of the pandemic, I found myself coming back to these stories. And I don't think I was completely aware of it at the time, but 
I see now kind of in hindsight that coming back to these stories was a way to have a sense of community when the pandemic had kind of taken away a sense of community for me. It was a way to vicariously connect to men that I had never known. But over the course of researching and learning about their lives, I felt like I had developed a type of friendship with people who had been gone for 100, 150, 200 years. The list includes Charles Darwin, Charles Dickens, Freud. I wanted to touch upon the two Charles. And I was very curious. I love both of them for very different reasons. But I was curious about what it was about Charles Darwin in particular that was interesting to you. It's important to know about his backstory that when he was about eight years old, his mother passed away, and he was told by his father and his sisters, who were older, we never speak of her again. Darwin never quite processed the loss of his mom. Darwin settled into a different space as he started to write his last three really important books, publishes his first book about evolution. He works on another one. And then the last book has to do with human and animal emotions. Dogs had always been a part of Darwin's life. They were companions for him growing up. And his dog, Polly, sat beside his writing desk. And Polly had lost her litter of puppies. She seemed to transfer that maternal care onto Darwin, wanting to be with him, loving and licking on him as much as Polly could. (laughs) So beautiful. And just this concept of. Darwin losing his mom at such a young age. And then at the end, Polly sort of stepping in as his mom kind of comes full circle. Now, the other Charles that you mentioned in your book, Chris, is Charles Dickens. And he had, from my understanding, a tough childhood, abandoned by his parents and definitely dealt with loneliness throughout his life. But it sounds like he also had some wonderful connections with a dog or dogs that helped him along the way. Dickens, at 12 years old, his parents and his sister were taken to debtor's prison because they couldn't pay their debts. Wow. It was a different kind of bankruptcy situation set up back then. And Dickens was left on his own at 12 to potentially support the family. And what that meant was Dickens felt the responsibility to earn enough money to buy them out of debtor's prison. The way that he did it was he went to a boot blackening shop, and he talks about this a lot, and he talks about it with a lot of hurt. He set aside money and wrapped it in a piece of paper every day so he would not end up like his parents did. The story that really inspired the cover of this book has to do with his turbulent middle years when he and his wife Catherine separated. And Dickens was a notorious walker, sometimes up to 20 miles a day. That was his way to think about the book he was writing and doing research. He had a country estate in Kent where he decided to take a walk on a snowy day, and he had something wrong with his foot. He thought he sprained it, but he walked three or four miles and then realized that it really was frostbite, and he was in bad shape. He's not really able to walk much more. He looks up into the woods and he sees two large dogs and he realizes that they're both his. Mm. The dogs come down to greet him. And Dickens' account of this is one on one side, one on the other. They walk stride for stride as they make the journey home. This is one of those moments where that part of us, that attachment system, that when we're in dire need, 
we really need somebody to turn to. And it's an extreme moment of vulnerability that oftentimes we're kind of let down in those moments where we feel left alone or discounted. And if you've had a history and experience of really expecting people to let you down when you need them most, imagine how healing, how precious that moment must have been for him. His dogs on each side, in sync with him, journeying the way home. That's stunning. That's a beautiful story. Do you have any other favorite anecdotes from the book? Well, I think I'd like to talk just a little bit about Freud. Please. Freud, the inventor of psychoanalysis, he already had a special relationship with dogs as an adult. His daughter, Anna, and he would pretend that they were sending poetry to each other in the guise of their dog, their German Shepherd. This is a poem for you on your birthday from our dog. That's what would happen, and it would go back and forth. He eventually would lose his closest daughter and his grandson to the pandemic that happened more than 100 years ago. And he shared with one of his closest colleagues, he didn't think he was able to love anymore. And into that void, the presence of dogs really touched him. Such a tenderness that Freud would not normally share with other people. He would share with his dogs. That's so beautiful. What happened for Freud when he was in his early 60s is that he was diagnosed with cancer of the jaw. And what would happen over the next decade or more is that he would have more than 30 cancer operations. Mm. At some point, he had a prosthetic jaw, felt very uncomfortable with people looking at him. And it's historians think about this as one of the driving reasons why he set up his consultation room the way he did. Patients lie on the couch and the analyst lies behind them. Well, another part that went into this was one of his dogs who would be with him in his consultation room. The dog was really in charge of screening new patients and the dog would meet them at the door. New patient would come in. And if his dog gave the green light, then Freud would be like, okay, I'll give this a shot. And then his dog would settle into <laughs> her own couch and uh, Freud didn't need a clock. The rumor was that his dog knew when the session was over and he would get up and would end for the day. That's great. I love that the dog had their own couch as well. Such a great visual. It is. It is. It really is. <laughs> Chris, I'm curious, how did writing this book in particular, where you were researching these fantastic men throughout history, how did that come back to reflect or did you discover anything new about your own relationship with your dogs? None of us gets out of this life without getting banged up in some way, whether that's through relationships or health or family or a myriad of other things. And a kind of wounded, damaged heart is still willing to open up to a dog to be a type of healing, transformative presence. As the title of the book says, have one unwavering friend. Yeah. I took a lot of comfort in realizing that what I have experienced in my life with my animal companions has been going on, we know, for at least 200 years, but it's likely for more than fifteen or 20,000 years. Beautiful. So, Chris, uh, to wrap this up, where can we find one unwavering friend? You can look online for Amazon or Barnes & Nobles and uh, the places where you find other books that you read. Fantastic. And where can we find you online and on social media? 
Sure. I'm on Twitter. And uh, if you need to touch base with me, you can reach me at my website, www.chrisblazinaphd.com. Chris, thank you again for being such an amazing guest and for joining us again on Dog Save the People. I'm so grateful to you. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. I so enjoyed having Chris back as a guest on the show. Chris is bringing a whole new perspective, both historically through the different people that he writes about, but also just about this idea of men and their dogs and how dogs in particular and animals in general really can help men to open up, to deal with loss, to understand the ideas of attachment, and to allow themselves to be more vulnerable. So I'm so excited to read this new book, One Unwavering Friend by Chris and to start learning and reading more about some of my favorites like Charles Dickens and Charles Darwin. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is made by As It Should Be, a production company and content studio. It is made with the support of Scott Benaglio, executive producer, and Jack Summer, our producer and editor. And special thanks to Daniel Lampert, our neighbor and composer, for creating the music for the show. You can follow Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow our show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To sign up for our monthly email newsletter, you can go to dogsavethepeople.com. On the website, you'll also be able to find merch in our new online gift shop. This includes shirts from the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, where profits go to supporting independent rescues and shelters. If you have any questions or submissions, please drop a note to the email address bark at dogsavethepeople.com. Enjoy a walk with your dog outside and make it a great day for both of you. Thank you.